Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. You know where we're going. We're going to the vault for an elder episode of the show. This one from last year aired on April 19th. That's 2022. And it is The Vegetable Lamb of Tartary, part one, where we uh, explore the, uh, the strange tale of a sort of vegetable mammal hybrid from far away. Yeah, th- these were a lot of fun, so I uh, hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Last week's episodes discussed uh, contemplations of plant memory and other topics that can blur our understanding of the animal-plant divide. Uh, And uh, when we were talking about all of this, uh, I mentioned uh, very briefly that hybrid creatures of myth and legend often serve, among other purposes, as a kind of reflection on the similarities and differences between animals and plants, and at times maybe uh, a contemplation of places where the distinction becomes a little confusing for one reason or another. So I thought we might discuss one of them uh, this week uh, in greater detail, and that is the vegetable lamb of Tartary. Uh, this is one of those creatures uh, I thought I might do a, like a, a short-form monster fact on, but the more I looked into it, the more it seemed to have legs. Oh, very nice. Uh, so yes. you were drawn to this, was this a nominative determinism thing? Um, I Well, this is one I had been vaguely familiar with, uh, in part because it does pop up in, in various... Uh, uh, bestiaries and monster books. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges uh, wrote about it uh, and was uh, in, in, enticed by it. Uh, but yeah, when you start looking into it, it there's there's a lot more to it than just a, a simple uh, definition and explanation of what it was or wasn't. Well, this was clearly one of the most popular fantastic creatures of medieval bestiaries. It's, it's mm-hmm. all over the place and it's treated with Varying degrees of credulity, more more credulity early on and less later on. 
That's right. So it's, uh, it was referred to as the vegetable lamb of Tartary by Sir Thomas Brown in his 1646 work, uh, Pseudodoxia Epidemica. Uh, and it was known by many other names as well. Um, uh, two of the, the first sources I looked at concerning this were, uh, of course, the uh, uh, Carol Rose's books, the Book of Monsters, and also the, the writings of, uh, of Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, they point out in their works, that the creature is also known as the Boromets or the Baromets. Uh, that's a prior, that's a that's an important name that comes up a lot. There's also the Polypodium Boromets, uh, the Chinese Polypodium, the Lycopodium or Chinese Lycopodium, the Jadua, the Scythian Lamb, and I've also seen it referred to as the Tartar Lamb. And we'll get into the, the differences, but the basic description of the Boromets or the Baromets, uh, as, uh, as Borges and, uh, and Rose catalog it, uh, respectively, uh, is that it's a plant shaped like a sheep that grows out of the ground. And if you cut it open, you'll find that the insides are exactly what you would find if you cut open an actual lamb or sheep, blood, flesh, bones, etc. People allegedly encountered this strange thing in uh, parts of Asia and then brought back stories about it, which were elaborated upon. Yes, and there's a great principle at play here, which is the same as the uh, a friend of my cousin's principle, you know, that yeah. you, you place the origin of your really cool story sort of several links or geographically far away so that it's harder to check up on. Uh, because, a, a, again, this is something that was said to exist in the land of Tartary. And a European chronicler in the Middle Ages saying that a wondrous life form is found in Tartary is not especially helpful to a reader who might want to look for evidence of this thing beyond the text they're reading, or especially if they want to go try to find it in the real world, since the European medieval concept of Tartary was a huge and vaguely defined area of land. It's not like saying it's in Chicago. Right, and it's a, a large area of land that not much was known about to Europeans uh, prior to the 18th century. Right, a lot of it was these fantastical travel books, like some of the ones we're going to talk about today. So this was, yes, the, the European name for the vast stretch of Asia that was north of the, the then borders of China, India, and Persia, as understood by the West. Right, you can think of it broadly as the central and northern area of the Asian mainland, including parts of what today would be Central Asia and Siberia, but running all the way down to the Himalayas, including Kazakhstan and Mongolia, what is today part of China and the whole eastern part of Russia. So this is this is a huge stretch of land. This is not being very specific at all to say that something is in Tartary, which is actually great because if you want to get away with weaving a tall tale for a European audience, this is an excellent place to set it. It's vast. Much of it is sparsely populated very little is known or understood by the reader, uh, so it's going to be very difficult to check up on on your story at that time. Now, one more thing before we get started looking at some of these great old sources is uh, there. There's a really great more recent source tracing the history of the vegetable lamb of Tartary legend and offering what I think is a very convincing argument about its natural origins. And we'll get more into the explanation of the natural origins in part two of this series. I think today we're going to focus more on the the legend itself and its development. But this source was by a 19th century English naturalist named Henry Lee, and it's called The Vegetable Lamb of Tartary, published in 1887. I'm going to be referring to that work repeatedly throughout these episodes, but uh, 
a little bit about Henry Lee. He was apparently an, an aquarium, a naturalist and an aquarium manager, and he published books in the 1870s and 80s investigating claims of various sea monsters and offering natural explanations for these uh, sightings and stories. He seems to me to be a, a very early model of the skeptical cryptozoologist. All right. But before we, we get into the, the realm of skeptical cryptozoologists, let's back it way up. And oh, yeah. Let's deal with some uh, uh, less reputable sources by <laughs> authors that may not have been actual people, <laughs> at least in one case. Interstage left, Sir John Mandeville. That's right. Uh, the book, the, the Sir John Mandeville's Travels uh, from 1350 CE. Now, the first thing you're probably asking is, okay, who's this John Mandeville guy that's going to tell me about his travels? Well, Mandeville is the supposed author of The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, um, a travel memoir that circulated during the mid-14th century. And uh, this individual is said to have been an English knight, but it's widely thought that this individual did not actually exist and that the true author may have been a Flemish monk, perhaps one uh, Jean de Lang, who, he, who was himself a prolific writer and a collector of various travel logs. Um, mm. But I, I think it's still, it's, it's not something we're 100% certain on, but uh, I've seen some sources that indicate that this guy's a possible bet just because he was sort of, all the interests and um, uh, resources lined up well. One of the wonderful things about reading Sir John Mandeville is if, if you find one of the archaic uh, original texts, the spellings of all the English words, like you can sort of make sense of, of it as a modern mm -hmm. English reader if you labor through it, but the spellings are just tremendous. He calls himself a knight of England, knight with a Y, and Eng England is spelled I-N-G-E-L-O-N-D. Oh, my heart. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Uh, I should I should also point out that there's there's been a lot of work over the years, uh, just analyzing how much of this book. It is, again, the author was not a real person, but how much of this may have been based on somebody's actual travels uh -huh. know, versus how much of it is just pure invention or generated off of the backs of other works. Yeah, it's it's difficult to tell that. I think it's pretty clear that his uh, story of the vegetable lamb of Tartary is a fabrication because, number one, he claims to have seen it himself. And as we'll get to it, we're pretty sure no nothing of this description ever actually existed. And it may be a garbled version of sightings of something that did really exist, but it wouldn't look anything like what John Mandeville describes. Right. So the fact that he claims to see it and his description does not match anything in nature, including real plants that could have inspired it, that, that seems to point to this just being made up but it could but, but it's also likely that he based this story on something else that he read from maybe a hundred years before him or even earlier his encounter with the alleged lamb of tartary comes in the 26th chapter of this travel book where he is describing the curiosities he, he came across in the dominion of the cham of tartary all right, here's the bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it here. Um, and my copy has the original spellings in it. So I'm going to try and lean into those spellings. Okay. Quote, And there groweth a manner of fruit, as though it were gourds, and when they been ripe, men cutten him atu, and men findin within a, a little beast, in flesh, in bone, and blood, as though it were a little lamb withouten wool. <laughs> fruit is F-R-U-Y-T. <laughs> yeah and and uh gourds is gourdes <laughs> <laughs> yeah g-o-w-r-d-e-s yeah love it 
yeah. So it's it's worth looking up just to to to, to take in these spellings. Um, yeah. And I have to say, I, I, when I read this in my mind, I'm reading it in the voice of Mary from the British comedy Ghosts, who's like this medieval peasant ghost who, has, uh, who I can easily imagine going through this uh, this this statement here. Um, you, you know who I really want to get a reading of the? I want to get Matt Berry to do it. <laughs> yeah, that would be good too. He could do a whole audiobook of the the travels of uh, John Mandeville. Um, it were a little lamb without an wool. <laughs> uh, but wait, wait a minute, though. So you cut it off there, and that's that's a great part of the quote. But the quote does go on. Do you mind if I feature the next sentence? Go for it. Okay. After that, it's uh, no. I'm not going to do a Matt Berry voice. It's and, and men eaten both the fruit and the beast, and that is a great marvel. Of that fruit, I have eaten, although it were wonderful. But that I know well that God is marvelous in his workies. Uh, <laughs> W-E-R-K-E-S. So let's review what we know from Mandeville now, right? So in Tartary, there is a plant that grows a fruit that resembles a gourd. And when these gourds are ripe, you can cut them open. And inside you will find a tiny beast that is exactly like a lamb, like a real lamb. Doesn't just look like one. It has meat and bone and blood. And men in Tartary will eat these little lambs. John Mandeville says, I myself ate one too, and it was delicious. And the existence of the lamb of Tartary is so marvelous that it proves the greatness of God. Wow. This this is a great source. <laughs> I saw the baby and the baby looked at me. <laughs> yes. The baby looked at you? <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. Chief Wiggum is all the subsequent chroniclers who report on this passage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just love every part of it. I mean, just the idea that you it looks like a lamb and you cut it open and it's got, it's not, not only does it bleed and have flesh, but it has bones. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's and, and this is not, there's even more. There are more layers of the absurd that will come in later tellings. Yeah, Mandeville seems to be one of the earliest widespread accounts of the lamb in medieval European sources. Uh, but the legend is repeated with many variations in, in books of the following centuries up until people start getting skeptical, I think basically during the Enlightenment. Uh, but uh, another one we should look at before we try to trace any farther forward or backward is uh, the one by, by Thomas Brown in the, in the mid-17th century. Right, in the book uh, Pseudodoxia um, Epidemica. This is, yeah, 1646. Now, Thomas Brown, this was certainly a real historic person who lived 1605 through 1682, an English author, physician, and polymath. He wrote on numerous topics, but is, is, was best known for uh, Religio Medici, a very popular work of the day on the connections between science and religion. And uh, the Boromets becomes uh, even more extraordinary by the time of Brown, who writes the following, quote, Much wonder is made of the Boromets, that strange plant animal or vegetable lamb of Tartary, which wolves delight to feed on, which hath the shape of a lamb, affordeth a bloody juice upon breaking, and liveth while the plants be consumed about it. And that much is typically quoted. You'll find that um, quoted on you know various um, uh, discussions of the the Boromets. But uh, there's more, uh, which is insightful uh, because uh, he continues. And yet, if all this be no more than the shape of a lamb in the flower or seed upon the top of the stalk, as we meet with the forms of bees, flies, and dogs, and in some others, he hath seen nothing that shall much wonder at all. So, in other words. 
However, if this is just something on the plant that is shaped more or less like an animal, we've seen that before, and it's nothing really to write home about. But he, I'm wondering, I can't quite tell from the text, is he saying that he thinks it's more likely just that it's like a flower that's shaped like a, like a lamb? Or is he saying, well, it could be one or the other? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, right? I mean, it's easy to, I, most, a lot of people seem to lean in to the idea that he's saying, Hey, this is real because they leave off the, the skeptical part of the quote. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure exactly which way, uh, the author is leaning himself here. Uh, but certainly there's a, there's a note of skepticism here that you, uh, that is sometimes lacking in the discussion of fantastic creatures even today. I actually looked up the context of this to see what else he's talking about in, in the other paragraphs uh, uh, around this. And in the paragraph right above his uh, passage on the Boromats or the Lamb of Tartary, he's talking about, quote, the tarantula or poisonous spider of Calabria and that magical cure of the bite thereof by music. Hmm. So this is a spider whose bite is cured by music. I think he also says that tarantulas will dance to music. I was trying to figure out hmm. the, what this meant. He says, quote, some also affirm that the tarantula itself will dance upon certain strokes. Hmm. The more you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mentioned uh, Carol Rose earlier, uh, a source I've turned to, and in her book, Giants, Monsters, and Dragons, she summarizes many of the, oral the overall traditions of the, the Boromets as follows, quote, in general, the Boromets was believed to be a creature with roots that held it fast in one place. It resembled a lamb sheep with golden-colored fleece. The stalk allowed it to browse the surrounding pasture. But as soon as this was consumed, the creature died of starvation. Humans or wolves then came and harvested the body, which was said to taste like crab meat. Its hooves were made of hair, which, uh, which like its fleece, was used by humans for weaving clothes. Yeah, so this seems to be a uh, a pretty good description of that other version. We have the the two main models, which are very different. The one of Mandeville, which is like there are lambs in the fruits. The fruits are like these gourds. You cut them open. Inside, they're little tiny lambs, and you can eat mm -hmm. them. And then there's this other version cited in a bunch of sources and summarized by Rose here, where it's a full-sized lamb or sheep, and it is attached to the plant stem by its navel, which acts like a tether and it eats all of the vegetation around it, which I love this detail. It can only survive until it has grazed all of the, the plant life within the radius of its umbilical stem. And then when it can't reach any more vegetation to graze on, it starves to death and dies unless a wolf or a human gets to it first and, and kills it for meat. Right. And I think we'll have more on the wolf, the wolf side of the uh, part of this changes. Um, I, I love that it tastes like crab and it's <laughs> yeah. just it's just such a you can also just see like this is what happens when a, an already fabulous account is given time to sort of uh, uh, fester or ripen um, mm -hmm. and, and also with the help of you know books talking to other books and translations and mistranslations taking place shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. 
Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, based on all these medieval sources I found uh, cataloged in in Lee's book, uh, Rose's summary seems to me very correct, with one exception, which is the characterization. She says that the fleece of the vegetable lamb is golden in color, but based on everything I've read, that's something that you find more in the later sources. Mm. The earlier sources, if they mention the color of the fleece, they describe it as pale white. And later, it's only in later sources like Erasmus Darwin uh, that changed this to golden. And Lee will uh, will end up arguing that there's a very specific reason for this change that has to do with the rationalist explanation of the lamb given in, in, in later centuries. And in fact, since I mentioned it, maybe I should go ahead and read a passage from Erasmus Darwin. This this is written mm-hmm. much later, uh, but but in Darwin's uh, work, the Botanic Garden, which is a grand poem about about the natural world, about the the plant world, written in 1781, Darwin writes, "Quote: 
Even round the pole the flames of love aspire, and icy bosoms feel the secret fire. Cradled in snow and fanned by arctic air shines gentle boromets, the golden hair. Rooted in the earth, each cloven foot descends, and round and round her flexile neck she bends. Crops the gray coral moss in hoary time, or laps with rosy tongue the melting rhyme, eyes with mute tenderness her distant dam, and seems to bleat, a vegetable lamb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I can't top that. But uh, one of the sources I was looking at uh, is uh, the work uh, Engelbert Kampfer and the Myth of the Scythian Lamb by Robert W. Uh, Karuba. And this was published in the Classical World in 1993. Uh, in this, the author points out that while the lamb is largely a product of the Middle Ages, some passages by classical authors so, such as Herodotus and Theophrastus, quote, played an innocent role in its development. And we'll have more on those two authors in a, in a bit. Yeah, I I think we'll have to revisit the links to Herodotus and the other Greek authors in part two, because that ties uh, directly into what I think is probably the best theory for explaining the lamb legend. But but it is, uh, I think, worth noting in this part, some other works preceding the story as told by John Mandeville. And I guess we'll come back to those in just a little bit. Yeah. Now, Karupa also describes the lamb as a zoophyte which is uh, an actual classification or sort of was an actual classification for plant-like animals. And this kind of comes back to our larger discussion that we were having, uh, in the, in, uh, having last week on the show. So the sessile nature of plants is a big part of their identity. But we do have non-plants and even animals that have taken on similar modes of existence. Um, uh, however, I do wonder if it's correct to think of the lamb here, fantastic as it may be, as a plant-like animal or an animal-like plant. I, in my notes, I kept wanting to refer to it as the creature, uh, but but then felt weird about calling it a creature when it really seems more like a creature-like plant. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what takes taxonomic precedence there. I mean, obviously, in, in the real world, there are Plants that have interesting characteristics of animals, like like the ones we talked about in the uh, the episodes from last week, the sensitive plant Mimosa mm-hmm. pudica, which shows rapid movement. Of course, the Venus flytrap is another example. These seismonastic movements w- that allow a plant to have movement on the time scale you would normally only associate with an animal. And then, of course, you can have animals that have characteristics we would associate with plants. That might animals that might look like plants in some way. They have some kind of camouflage that looks like vegetables. Vegetation. I think of the, uh, you know, like the sloths that look like they're they're covered in some kind of plant life. Or mm-hmm. there are even some animals that have the power to absorb energy from the sunlight, like plants do. Like I believe there are um, uh, there are certain salamanders that have uh, evolved ways to do this. And there might be a, a sea c- cucumber example. Uh, uh, so so you can find characteristics normally associated with one in the other. But then again, there are no such things as animal-plant combinations. Like animals and plants are too far removed, uh, too far removed in the tree of life to like interbreed or anything like that. Right, right. But nevertheless, we do get this concept uh, in in the Middle Ages of of the zoophyte. Uh, one I was reading about in the same context as as the vegetable lamb of Tartary was the so called barnacle goose myth. <laughs> uh, I think there are, there are different ways this has been conceptualized, but there's like a type of goose that it, at various times in history has been thought to 
bud off of barnacles like in the water so it's it's not actually a land animal or a bird it's uh it's it's actually some kind kind of fish or water animal or they even say that this goose maybe came out of trees so it's okay to eat this goose on Fridays even if you're supposed to fast from meat on Fridays because it's not actually a bird it is a plant yeah that that reminds me of our episode the, the furry fish in which we were discussing otters a bit uh and, and if you didn't listen to it why would we discuss otters in, in an episode about the furry fish well that was because uh in some places there were discussions well what do we call the otter like is it, it lives in the water it, it mm-hmm. does things that seem very fish like therefore is it okay uh, for us to, uh, uh, to to eat the flesh of the otter as if it were a fish? Is it going to be, uh, uh, is, is it going to be uh, subject to the same rules concerning uh, dietary uh, rules concerning the consumption of, uh, of non-fish uh, meat? That sort of thing. That kind of thing just doesn't really fly anymore, does it? Like you can't, you can't bring a goose to a vegan uh, potluck and say, no, this goose came off of a tree. Uh, it was, it's actually a fruit. <laughs> well, we can't say it yet, but something we might get into in a later episode, um, or even in the next episode a little bit, is will we reach the day when you can do that? Uh, when you can say, no, this goose meat is all right because it was not uh, harvested from the wild. It was grown off of something. I, I picked it this morning. Uh, another uh, example that's sometimes mentioned in terms of zoophytes uh, from Chinese traditions that frequently comes up is that of uh, cordyceps. Uh, this is, of course, when uh, you have cordyceps, you have these parasitic funguses that will overtake an insect, resulting in something that would certainly be confusing and difficult to classify if you didn't know what was going on. These have long been a part of Chinese traditional medicine, uh, quite popular. And uh, I, I remember when I was last in, in China about I think nine years ago, I remember seeing an entire storefront filled with these. And you can still, you can find cordyceps, you know, for sale uh, in, in anywhere. Uh, Chinese traditional medicine and um, uh, Chinese traditional medical uh, products are sold. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, if you just look at one of these specimens, it's quite, you can see where the confusion might, might, uh, might occur. And you might think, well, this is clearly neither, it's not quite an animal, but it's not quite something else either. Yeah. So if things like this exist, I mean, why not a vegetable lamb, right? Well, we can talk about why not later on. But yeah, I mean, one wants to uh, have some, you know, give some leeway to medieval thinkers, because uh, if you don't have a a theory that helps you organize uh, claims about the natural world into plausible and implausible, uh, you, you do at least know, well, the natural world is full of surprising things. So why not a vegetable lamb? Why not a plant that grows a mammal out of it? Yeah. So, so going back to that work by uh, Karuba, uh, the, the author points to uh, ways that the idea was popularized uh, later on by such writers as as Dr. Erasmus Darwin, who we quoted earlier with the uh, the, the bleeding quote there. Uh, we also have Gerolamo uh, Cardano and Julius Caesar Scaliger. Uh, but Karuba here is chiefly dealing with the work of Engelbert Kampfer on the subject. Kampfer was a German naturalist who lived 1651 through 1716 and who was actually himself widely traveled, having toured Russia, Persia, India, Southeast Asia, and Japan. Uh, his book, History of Japan, was the main Western source on Japan for nearly two centuries. So he's, he's kind of the ideal individual to weigh in on the lamb of Tartary, uh, yeah. and uh, and so so he he uh, so so he does. Um, uh, he now uh, 
uh, as far as uh, Karuba here goes, he begins by, by citing yet another uh, description of this marvel, uh, this time from the writings of French botanist Claude Duret. And this one was apparently highly influential during the 18th century. Quote, in Tartary, there are seeds which are like the seeds of gourds, only shorter in size, which grow and blossom like a stem to the navel of an animal, which is called a boromets in their language, i.e. lamb, because it resembles a lamb in all its limbs from head to foot. Its hooves are cloven. Its skin is soft. Its wool is adapted for clothing, but it has no horns, only hairs on its head, which grow and are intertwined like horns. Its height is half a cubit and more. According to those who speak of this wondrous thing, its taste is like the flesh of fish, its blood as sweet as honey, and it lives as long as there is herbage within range of the stem from which it derives its life. If the herbage is destroyed or perishes, the animal also dies away. It has uh, rest from all beasts and birds of prey, except the wolf, which seeks to destroy it. wonder why only the wolf. I don't know. Only the wolf and, and, and I guess in some tellings, people. But okay, so we this time its flesh tastes like fish, its blood is as sweet as honey, and it lives until the wolf gets it, or again, it eats all of the, the herbage within reach of the stem. Right. So, Comfort was interested in this, and in Comfort's writing, uh, he, he discusses the the origin of the word uh, as he derived it, the, the boromets or boromets, to the Slavic baran and the Persian bare, both meaning sheep, apparently. Uh, but he also points out that uh, the, the, the actual uh, Scythian sheep is rather different from the common variety of sheep in Germany. Uh, it, he says it's bigger, it has different, um, I believe it is later described as a massive tail, and it has a mass of fat that drags around behind it. Um, it's fat and meat and are both delicious and its hide is prized as well. I don't know quite what to make of this uh, description of a massive fat tail uh, and, uh, and uh, Karuba doesn't really go into it. Uh, but uh, having, having related this, Comfort is basically saying, okay, look, granted, um, the sheep over there don't look quite like the sheep we have here, but... When I was traveling in regions, uh, you know, uh, th that would have been familiar with this, surely no one knew what I was talking about. No one had ever heard of a Boromets as described in these traditions. And so he ruled that it is, quote, pure fiction and fable. Yeah, it seems to me that while the story was taken as generally true by uh, authors in the Middle Ages, by like the 17th and 18th centuries, authors who wrote about it seemed to be more often skeptical, like another one who was skeptical not so much of the initial reports, but of their interpretation, was the 17th century German polymath Athanasius Kircher, who's come up on the podcast several times before. Apparently, Kircher wrote, quote, Some authors have regarded it as an animal, some as a plant, whilst others have classified it as a true zoophyte. In order not to multiply miracles, we assert that it is a plant. Though its form be that of a quadruped, and the juice beneath its woolly covering be blood, which flows if an incision be made in its flesh, these things will not move us. <laughs> it will be found to be a plant. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> tell it like it is. I mean, I think once this series is over, Kircher will be vindicated. But uh, but it's interesting how, how certain he is in this writing of this thing he's never seen for himself. Well, you know, the thing is, if you have even... 
even a halfway broad familiarity with plants of of, of many you know, of any given region, you know, there's, there's a good chance you'll be familiar with things that do resemble, uh, say, blood. Like if you know anything about beets, then the yeah. idea that uh, some sort of plant uh, in, has blood in it or something that looks like blood shouldn't be that shocking. In fact, this brings to mind something we talked about in our episode on beans. You remember that strange observation from the ancient world that the the Pythagoreans uh, did not eat beans. And in fact, there's even a story, I mean, it's hard to know if it's true, but there's a claim that Pythagoras died mm-hmm. being pursued by a violent mob because he, he was running away from them, but he wouldn't run through a bean field uh, because, right. I don't know, that's a strange thing to wonder why. And so people want to know what's the secret of the beans? Why why does Pythagoras have this, this bean problem? And there were a lot of different explanations we talked about in the, that episode, but one of the possibilities was the modern observation that bean plants sometimes appear to bleed. Like uh, bean plants have these little nodes in their roots that can become infected with a bacterium known as rhizobium. And I think if you if you cut these open, uh, the, these bacterial nodes actually produce a, a hemoglobin-like molecule that, that works pretty much the same way as the hemoglobin in our blood, uh, binding with oxygen. And the result is that if you cut these things open, you get this red juice coming out of them that looks almost exactly like human blood. So somebody might have cut a bean plant open and been like, whoa, this thing is bleeding like a human or at least like an animal. So uh, so uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we shouldn't eat these things. Maybe they have the souls of our ancestors in them or something. You can imagine <laughs> a, a similar thing going on with some other plant, right? You know, you could observe that it might produce a juice that looks shockingly like animal blood. Yeah, like like I I don't really uh, I, I don't cook with, uh, with with you know meats that have blood in them uh, anymore, but uh, but on the uh, when I do cook with beets and I'm like cutting beets, uh, I'm always just taken by how um, horrific everything looks. You know, like, yes, it's yeah. uh, you know I feel like I'm in a horror movie because I'm covered with this red juice and I'm holding a a butcher knife and so forth. Yeah. I'll save you. If you're eating beets for the first time, let me save you some Googling. (laughs) If you go to the bathroom later, you're not dying. That's normal. No. Yeah. Just remember that you had beets earlier. Yeah. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, anyway, back to uh, um, uh, Karuba and his writings on Kampfer here. Um, uh, from, from here in, in his work, Kampfer goes on uh, to discuss the possible origins of the myth, and uh, this is what Karuba has to say about it. This is how he summarizes it. Quote, As to the origin of the myth, Kampfer can only speculate that the museum specimens of delicate fetal fur can easily be confused with vegetable substance, and that geological distance— linguistic misunderstanding, and the inclination to believe in wonders or prodigies provide the explanation. Comfort's account is noteworthy because it debunked the myth by eyewitness investigation, provided a first detailed description of the real Scythian lamb, uh, uh, you know, that's the, the, uh, the one with the supposed fat tail, uh, mm. And practices associated with it, you know, what people do with it, that they like to, uh, you know, eat, eat it, and, uh, you know, they use the hide, and attempted to explain rationally the origin of the myth. This is similar to what Lee says, actually, about Kampfer. Uh, he says that uh, he thinks that Kampfer got the rational explanation of the myth wrong. Like, he thinks mm-hmm. for many reasons it is not actually it was not actually inspired by this practices of harvesting the hides of fetal Scythian lambs, but at least the camphor was like, no, let's look for an explanation that, that's more biologically plausible than a, than a plant that grows into a mammal. Yeah. It, you know, it, one of the things, and maybe this is one of the things that's so attracted me about the weirdness of the, the vegetable lamb of Tartary is that in its most elaborate form, it, it seems like such a contradiction to our other tales of the fantastic. So many creatures you encounter in a medieval bestiary or any kind of folklore or mythology, the wilder the form, 
uh, the more dangerous, the more mysterious, the further yeah. away from human culture. And this is a thing that is like the domestic lamb uh, made even more harmless. You know, it is it's, it's, yeah. it's the fantastic but mundane qualities of the uh, of the vegetable lamb. Right. It's not something that is fearsome and free and uncontrollable and, and mm-hmm. uh, all that. It's it's something that's like a standard part of animal agriculture, except it's just like mixing these different categories together. It's an utterly mundane part of life. It's like a story about uh, a psychic TV dinner. It's just, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it so it it really seems to buck the trend in so many ways, and uh, yeah. and I and I'm I'm guessing maybe that's why people were fascinated back then as well. You know, like you know everybody was into the you're always into the idea of dragons and strange snakes and yes, all the monsters of the sea, but but here's something that just sounds crazy and and yeah. uh, and and it's helpless out there. You know, I mean, the wolves are just coming up and chomping these things. Yeah, you feel sad for it when you hear the myth. Yeah. Like if the wolves don't get it, it's it's doomed to starve to death pretty quick because, you, you know, it's only got that short radius of stem length to eat the vegetation from. Right. Well, okay. There's one more thing I wanted to get to from the Henry Lee book, which is that Lee actually includes analysis of uh, similar legends that are traced back to a little bit before the time of Sir John Mandeville. Okay, so this is about to turn into a chain of citations for a minute, but it gets pretty interesting, so stick with me. So Henry Lee notices first that Claude Duray, the one you were talking about earlier in a work called the Histoire Admirable, uh, I don't know how you say that in French, Admirable, Admirable des Plantes, uh, in 1605, writes that uh, he once read in a Latin version of the uh, of the Jewish commentary work, the Jerusalem Talmud, a claim attributed to an Ethiopian scholar named Moses Chusenzis, quote, that there was a certain country of the earth which bore a zoophyte or plant animal called in Hebrew Jedua. It was in form like a lamb, and from its navel grew a stem or root by which this zoophyte or plant animal was fixed, attached, like a gourd to the soil below the surface of the ground, and according to the length of its stem or root, it devoured all the herbage which it was able to reach within the circle of its tether. The hunters who went in search of this creature were unable to capture or remove it until they had succeeded in cutting the stem by well-aimed arrows or darts, when the animal immediately fell prostrate to the earth and died. Its bones being placed with certain ceremonies and incantations in the mouth of one desiring to foretell the future, he was instantly seized with a spirit of divination and endowed with the gift of prophecy. Oh, wow. So that's a new wrinkle. Okay, so this this lamb is not only a vegetable that's tethered to the ground by stem— you have to kill it by severing the stem with arrows or darts. They don't say why in this source, but we'll get to another one in a minute. And then it falls down, and then you take this lamb's bones, and you put the bones in your mouth with with special magic spells that allow you to tell the future. That's interesting, because yeah, so many of these other accounts we're looking at, they just say, oh, well, it tastes great. It tastes like fish. It tastes like crab. It's just really yeah. good to eat, and you can use the hide. And you know, generally, that's in most traditions, like that's what you're concerned with, with the body of an animal. But then, mm-hmm. of course, when you're dealing with the, with the body of a plant and the parts of a plant, you know, as, as we got into a, a bit in, uh, in last week's episodes, I mean, the, you know, history is, uh, is a tale of humans figuring out how to use different parts of the plant 
what the, what it will do, what it seems to do, you know, and figuring out all the ways that the, the natural chemical properties and chemical weapons and defenses of the plant can be used for, for curative reasons or preventative reasons. And so in this, yeah, we're kind of leaning more into the plantiness of it, that it's mm-hmm. going to have, uh, there are going to be effects to eating it. And, you know, certainly these are magical effects, but uh, they're, they're effects nonetheless. Oh, I, I thought you were going to go in the direction of wondering about psychopharmacology. So if this is a plant, <laughs> well, yeah, that too. And they, yeah. you put it in your mouth and then you can see the future. Okay. Well, no, yeah, I mean, that's 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 part of it too. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, th- this is Duray referring back to uh, what he what he calls the Jerusalem Talmud. Technically, there, there are two major Talmud traditions. I think the, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. And the Talmud is the, the text of Jewish rabbinical law. So it includes records of oral teaching in Judaism and commentary on the Torah and things like that. Uh, so Lee says that he went searching for this story in the Talmud and he couldn't find it. So he had to consult a scholar named Reverend Dr. Herman Adler, who was chief rabbi delegate of the United Congregations of the British Empire. So this would have been at the time that Lee was writing in the 1880s. And he says that Adler was actually able to find the real source. So this goes back to from before John Mandeville. So it's in a section of the Jerusalem Talmud called the Mishnah uh, Kilayim. And there is a section here that reads as, quote, creatures called Adne Hasada, or literally lords of the field, are regarded as beasts. And there is a variant reading of Abne Hasada, meaning stones of the field, not lords of the field. And so Adler was writing about this, and he found that there was a medieval commentary on this passage written by a Rabbi Simeon of Sens, which is a place in France. And Rabbi Simeon lived in the uh, 12th and early 13th century. And he writes, quote, It is stated in the Jerusalem Talmud that this is a human being of the mountains. It lives by means of its navel. If its navel be cut, it cannot live. I have heard in the name of Rabbi Meyer, the son of Kalanimus of Spire, that this is the animal called Jedua. This is the Jedui mentioned in scripture, literally wizard from uh, Leviticus uh, 19. With its bones, witchcraft is practiced. A kind of large stem issues from a root in the earth on which this animal called Jadua grows, just as gourds and melons. Only the Jadua has, in all respects, a human shape, in face, body, hands, and feet. By its navel, it is joined to the stem that issues from the root. No creature can approach within the tether of the stem, for it seizes and kills them." Within the tether of the stem, it devours the herbage all around. When they want to capture it, no man dares approach, but they tear at the stem until it is ruptured, whereupon the animal dies. And then there's another commentator named Rabbi uh, Obadia, uh, Obadia of Berbinoro, that adds that you have to use arrows to, to sever the stem, presumably because you can't get close enough to hack at it with a sword or the Jedua will kill you. And I think this is really interesting. So if you go back even earlier than Mandeville, of course, Mandeville wasn't telling the story about it being uh, this beast on a tether. Mandeville's version was the gourd fruits that had the little lambs inside. Uh, But if you go back earlier than these other stories, you have this version that's similar in pretty much every way, except it's not a lamb. It's like a human shape. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. First of all, I love how all of these later accounts we're looking at, they're all about that herbage. It's all about eating yeah. up that herbage, but uh, but yeah, here with this we have this uh, 
we have this this ferocious version of it, something that's more in keeping with with what we were saying. What you you tend to want to expect from the wild world of myth and uh, and monsters, something you dare not approach, uh, and if you do, you better know exactly where its weak spot is. Uh, and and yeah, so it's. Um, I mean, I guess this is kind of a. Uh, you have shades of uh, of 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 um, of umbilical cords and mammals here uh, being yeah. compared to, uh, to to plants being uh, rooted to the soil, um, and of course not only plants, but this would have been observed with things like mushrooms as well, with stems emerging from the soil and so forth. Um, yeah, and then I, I guess one would imagine then that essentially you have converging mythologies about things that are not plants rooted to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so strange and interesting. And, uh, anyway, I, I think in the next episode is when we'll have to come back to discuss some of the, the rational theories about the origin of the myth. And, and I think, uh, there, there's some pretty good explanations on offer, especially mm-hmm. the one by Henry Lee, but, but there are multiple ones, uh, that have been put forward over the years. Um, one last thing before we wrap up this episode is I, I wanted to mention how reading about the history of this mythological creature really makes me think about the benefits of having an evolutionary perspective on biology. Because, of course, nature is full of surprises, shocking surprises, mm-hmm. but it also obeys deterministic physical laws, the most important of which are probably common descent and evolution by natural selection. And I think having an evolutionary perspective on life can help you sort out which types of surprising claims about nature are actually plausible and which are not. So the idea of a lamb that grows from a plant is not really remotely plausible if you understand that complex multicellular life forms arise only by varying and building upon the morphology of direct ancestors. You know, plants and animals arise from different chains of ancestors that diverged more than 1.5 billion years ago. So given what we know about plants and animals today, you're not going to get a plant that grows quadrupedal mammalians with with bones and blood and fur out of it. Like, you know, there are tons of shocking, amazing things about the natural world, but they're shocking and amazing within something that makes sense cladistically, within something that makes sense from the ancestors they emerged from. There's no physically plausible scenario in which a plant like that exists, given what we know about the history of life on Earth. But the authors of the Middle Ages... Uh, even if they were intelligent and well-informed people, were not armed with a theory of biology that would allow them to tell the difference between an extraordinary but physically plausible claim about nature, and there are tons of those that turn out to be true, and a claim that just simply wouldn't happen because it doesn't make sense. Uh, Though I, I think it's also interesting that even without a theory, even without a formal scientific theory explaining why this organism is pretty much impossible within the context of known Earth life, some people of the of the pre evolution, the pre Darwin past had some kind of intuition that caused them to reject this story. Like Kircher, for example, he wasn't the un- the only one, but you know, Athanasius Kircher looks at these stories. He says, "No, this is people are just getting confused. This is a plant." <laughs> And so even without a theory of evolution, some people were able to look at that story and think, nah, nature is full of wonders, but that's not one of them. And I wonder, like, what are those intuitions? That, that, that's an interesting question on its own. 
Yeah, yeah. Because it's uh, likewise, it's hard for us to divorce ourselves from our basic understanding of the differences between plant and animals, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I, I, my mind instantly goes to some of the just really amazing examples of mimicry in the world, um, you know, and, and a lot of times they are just really, really amazing, but there, there are sort of limits to them. You know, it's like this, here's an organism that has evolved over time to have part of its anatomy or some function of its anatomy resembling that of another organism. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, there are various examples of this, but like one simple one is a, a non-toxic uh, organism uh, resembling the coloration of a toxic organism, right? Organism, yeah. right? But but that's but there's a limit to it, right? It's not like where the the act of mimicry also involves having the toxin, uh, you know, right? Yeah, and so forth. Not without a long intervening period of having to develop that, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, or likewise, uh, you know, part of an animal resembling a false head. It doesn't actually that head doesn't have functional eyeballs inside it, and so forth. Uh, right. <laughs> But, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's hard to put yourself in the mindset where you don't have some of these basic laws in place and these basic differences in place in your mind. Yeah, you, you just don't know what goes and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it is actually interesting reading some of the, the reasons given by these, uh, by these late medieval authors or Renaissance authors uh, that, that came before. They had a theory of evolution, but they had other reasons, some of which are spurious, but <laughs> interesting to, to, to re read through. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, a guy named Girolamo Cardano. Uh, this was uh, 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 an author of, of Pavia, and he was writing in the, the mid-16th century – and I remember he argued that this plant-animal thing couldn't really exist because uh, in order to have blood, it has to have a heart, and the soil that the plant was growing in uh, did not have enough heat to create a heart. Okay. That's what he said. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, it's his reason. It's a rationale. Um. <laughs> I mean, I think he's sort of on the right track, but it also sounds kind of ad hoc. It's like he's just sort yeah. of making this up. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, to take it in another direction here, like I was thinking back to some of the things we discussed last week. And okay, so the idea that you would have a, a plant that would grow and it would essentially grow itself a sheep and that sheep would eat the plants growing around it, eat the, you know, feast on the, on the herbage. Uh, yeah. And um, the, like the basic relationship there. Uh, between this plant and the plant surrounding it uh, is not that crazy. I mean, one of the things we discussed is that sometimes the, the, the places where you see the most dynamic interactions in the plant world are between one plant and another. Yeah, um, competition, of the, yeah. Yeah, competition, uh, even if it's just, you know, like two bean plants uh, looking at the same pole, not looking at it, you know, sensing the same pole, sensing each other, and there's a competition for uh, for that resource. And then in some cases, you know, this the, the the competition that's taking place, it's not being, you know, there's no need for some sort of a fabulous uh, sheep morph that grows out of the plant because the battle is taking place uh, at the chemical level. You know, it's a more subtle battle. Uh, it's not, and it's not a battle that's taking place within the human realm and with the human time, it's taking place on, on the level of plant time. And therefore, for the most part, we do not see it. Yeah, and I see what you're getting at there because some attempts to explain the origin of this myth have looked into, well, what are some plants that essentially rob all of the area surrounding the plant of nutrition or poison its neighbors or something that essentially mm -hmm. plants that, that keep other plants from getting anywhere near them to make it look like they are surrounded by these patches of barren earth. Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, th I think we'll have to wait until part two to come back and, and explore those explanations. 
That's right. Uh, but in the meantime, we would love to hear from everyone out there if you have thoughts on the vegetable lamb of tartary uh, and just, you know, basically plants in general, uh, the weirdness of plants, the, the weirdness of, of mythic and legendary plants uh, as well. Um, I'm also kind of surprised there's not a Pokemon of this thing um, <laughs> because I was, I was, I've, I've been, my son has been showing me a lot of Pokemon creatures in his book uh, that he has this big uh, compendium. It's a, you know, it's a bestiary of mm-hmm. Pokemon, which I, I applaud. And they often have fantastic forms. And sometimes they have forms that uh, that remind me a little bit of the vegetable lamb here. Like there's a, a creature that has like the, the the legs of a turtle, but it's then it's instead of a shell, it has like an apple pie. And then, you know, th- so there are, there are a number of different creatures in there that have kind of animal and vegetable properties, uh, uh, you know, intertwined. And I feel like the, the vegetable lamb of Tartary should have been in there. So I guess Pokemon masters, if you are out there, uh, the, the people who make these things, uh, when you create some more uh, Pokemon monsters, uh, consider making the lamb of Tartary. I don't know what the, the three different evolutions would be, but I'm sure you'll, you'll figure it out. Tell them, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're listening, Pokemon designers. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have Listener Mail on Monday, Short Forum Monster Fact or Artifact on Wednesday, and on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.